Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. It's Friday, November 8th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So, Chris, as you know, this week's show is a little bit different because we actually recorded the interview uh, live at AT&T Park in San Francisco during the Discovery Days at the Bay Area Science Festival. Yes, I do. And I was thinking of you while you were doing it. It was a lot of fun. And uh, we had a great crowd. And so we, we spoke to a psychology professor named Alison Gopnik from the University of California at Berkeley, who has this really interesting thesis that, in fact, we often underestimate the intelligence of our babies, uh, that they're smarter than we think, and that the way in which they explore the world is something that we can all learn from. Let's listen to what she had to say. We need to have a period, a time in our lives when we can just explore, just learn, without having to worry about taking the things that we've learned and actually putting them to use. One way you could think about it is that it's like babies and young children are like the research and development division of the human species, and we grown-ups are production and marketing. So we have this time when we have all these grown-ups who are actually investing in us, taking care of us, uh, looking after our needs, and then in that time we can actually find out all the things that we need to know to implement to be effective adults. Well, I, I love this analogy between babies and basic research, and uh, I think it should be used often, not only because obviously babies are adorable, but because basic research needs help. <laughs> Anything <laughs> associating uh, it with babies, yeah, I think that might help. Yeah, and one of the things that was really exciting about doing a live taping is that, we, of course, we got to take questions from the audience. Uh, we had a Twitter feed going in which people could submit questions on a hashtag. We also had a roving mic. Uh, so we got the audience involved and you know they came up with some really great questions. So I'm excited for you to hear them. Wow, you're becoming like an entertainer. <laughs> I hope I already am one. <laughs> So that'll be our interview for today. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the news and the headlines uh, related to science, of course. So there's a new study that has just come out showing that different brain cells in the same brain might have different DNA. That, you know, the actual genetic code in the cell is different from cell to cell within the same brain. Isn't that amazing? 
Yeah, that's you know, I I I read some of this. I didn't read the paper, but I read a description of the paper and I'm I, I don't know. I this is this is a little over my head, but certainly I thought that the DNA was the code and the code is the same in all the cells of the body. Now I thought that different parts of the code obviously get turned on to make different cells do different things, but this is beyond that and it also it just suggests that doesn't this, Indre, mean that the brain is even more complex? It's not just the trillions of connections. It's also the varying DNA. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it kind of makes sense in terms of if you think about what the brain is for and how it works. So the brain really is about recording our experiences. And unlike any other organ in the body, it probably changes the most with experience. I mean, that's its job to record what's happened so that we can make better decisions about what to do next. So the fact that cells show a difference, even in their very coding, kind of just underscores the fact that this organ is, is so powerful in terms of being adaptive to the environment. The other thing I was thinking is that, I mean, of course, we had the Human Genome Project, and, you know, it was quite a scientific achievement. But my understanding is that coming off of that, you know, it was expected that there would be just all of these great medical innovations because suddenly we understood the genes. And it turned out to be not as simple as that, and not all the expectations were met. And now you see something like this. I mean, it turns out that the code, just knowing the code, is really, I mean, I don't know if I should say not enough, but it's its really just the beginning. Yeah, and the code seems to be something that's malleable to a certain extent. We, we know... We- from the Human Genome Project, that in fact, the critical point is how those genes interact with their environments, right? Epigenetics and and that g- genes change over time as we get older. We talked about cancer last week and how really it's a disease of genes and, and you know, mutations as, as we get older. Um, and so the notion that in fact, what's critical is how these genes are changing with time and, and experience and the environment. Um, it's way more complicated than we thought, but in some ways we're actually finally, I think, starting to understand just how it all works. So this is not the kind of thing that makes you neuroscientists go, okay, I'm throwing in the towel. This thing's just too complex. (laughs) No, we knew it was too complex. Now it's like, well, here's a whole other uh, way of looking at it and trying to get at some of these answers that we haven't been able to answer, you know, for decades. Yeah, it's like take the trillion connections and then multiply it by an unknown number and you'll have the complexity. Yeah. And, you know, add experience, which, of course, varies <laughs> right. in multiple universes. Let's let's throw in some quantum physics, too. <laughs> yes. But we still try. We still try. That's what this show is about. So, uh, Indre, I've been watching something else this week. There was a big New York Times story that basically drew attention to something that has been there's been a drumbeat of attention to it uh, for a while. And this is the fact that more than ever, people who get PhDs, really smart people, uh, don't get jobs afterwards. And more and more uh, people like that are asking, you know, is this academic career pathway, which includes, you know, let's be honest, really low pay for a really long time, is it worth it? And I just want to give some facts on this. So a National Science Foundation survey found, and this is a 2011 survey, there'll be a new one out soon, found that of those who had just gotten their PhD, 35% did not have a job commitment at the time that they received their doctorate. And if you break it down into some fields, the number is 38% for the life sciences. It's 31%, so not as bad for the physical sciences. It is 43%, although I guess it's not surprising for the humanities. Uh, and and in the newspaper story, the, the New York Times story, they tell about the growth of what's called the 
ALT-AC, you know, that's A-L-T-A-C, which means Alternative Academic Movement. And it's a combination of denouncing, you know, graduate schools as kind of exploitive, but also trying to support those PhDs who don't have a job and, in effect, trying to redirect them. Uh, so I just find it I mean, sad to see all this energy yeah. being not used. <laughs> I mean. You know, and then you have people like our Nobel Prize winner, Randy Sheckman, who was on the show yeah. a few weeks ago, basically saying that a lot of people from his lab, a lot of the PhDs and postdocs from his lab are choosing to go into industry and that he sees that as really quite a positive step. Now, I've actually had some some backlash from some of my friends who are in biotech saying that, you know, it's not as rosy a picture as he paints and that it's really hard to go into industry, even in biotech, which is, you know, a place where they employ a lot of PhDs. Yeah. Um, so you got to uh, you know, convince I, them to employ some poets, too, it looks like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think anytime you're you're going after a PhD, you really have to ask yourself why. I mean, you're becoming an expert in something very specific. And so if if it's in, in too, you know inherently interesting for you and, and that's the only way that you can satisfy that curiosity, then by all means, go and do it. But if it's a if it's a way to a stepping stone towards a job, you know, I, yeah, I think you got to really question whether it wouldn't be just be better to go and get experience in the industry in which you want to work. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's just sad it, to me. It, to me, it's a it's a sign of the United States scientific establishment just being in such a more precarious place also, you know, in terms of the whole, you know, pipeline from, you know, leading to becoming a scientist. It's just gotten so much more complicated and so much more difficult uh, than it than it was during the sort of heyday when we really were driving uh, the research establishment that would become the best one in the world. And so you have to wonder um, what this is going to result in. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going through a massive shift in the way that science is being, you know, taught and consumed in in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world. And so, you know, we we are seeing a big change. Um, but you know, I'm also part of the alt ac you know movement, and I certainly wouldn't give up the years in which I spent getting my PhD. I learned so much; it shaped me as a person. And even though, you know, it didn't give me a tenure track job, I chose not to go in that direction. It's certainly enriched my life and every job I've done, you know, since I graduated. No, I, I think that, you know, I think there's a lot of people for whom, like you, I mean, you have many, many opportunities, but I just worry about the the person who has just got a great brain on their heads, but doesn't know what they want. And there's so many of them like that doesn't know what they want. Academia, because they're just, th they just love ideas, but are not very directionful. And they can end up doing this for, I don't know, five years, 10 years. And then at the end of it, I mean, we got to... There's got to be a better way to put those people to work. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think I think people are just starting to realize that, uh, you know, a, a PhD is a, is a specialized skill and not knowing what you want to do afterwards is not a reason to get a PhD. <laughs> so on that note, let's talk to another PhD who's turning out more PhDs. Uh, we'll take a short break and be back with our interview today with Alison Gopnik. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Alison Gopnik. Yeah. I'm glad to be here. So I first wanted to start off by asking you why it is that you feel that we should reframe the way that we think about baby intelligence. A lot of us think of babies as being simple, stupid, selfish adults. But in fact, that's not the case. Yeah, if you'd asked most philosophers and psychologists and psychiatrists even just 20 or 30 years ago uh, about babies and young children, what they would have said is that babies and young children were irrational 
and egocentric. And I couldn't take the perspective of other people or figure out what was going on in the world. And over the past 30 years, a new science has told us that it's exactly the opposite is true. In some ways, even the youngest babies know, well, they certainly know more and learn more than we ever would have thought. And in some ways, they're actually smarter, they're better learners than we grown-ups are. So how is it that their minds are different from ours in terms of the structure of the brain itself? Well, if you actually look at baby brains, you can see that babies have many, many more uh, neural connections being formed, many more synapses being formed than we adults do. So if you look at a baby's brain, the neurons are trying to connect with all of the other neurons. And what happens as we get older is that the connections we make when we're young that get a lot of exercise that are useful to us get maintained, and then the other connections are pruned, they disappear. So it's as if early on we have this brain that's really designed for learning, a brain that's very flexible and plastic and responds a lot to experiences. And then later on, as we get older, we have a brain that's more sort of a lean, mean machine, really designed to do things well, but not nearly as flexible, not nearly as good at learning something new. So what is it that we should look for when we watch babies interact with the world that can tell us a little bit about just how smart they are? Well, all you have to really do is look carefully at a baby or a young child, and you'll see that just in the course of their everyday existence, their everyday play, they're actually doing experiments. So if you watch, say, a 10-month-old picking up a new toy, you'll see that she'll very carefully try knocking it on the edge of a table and then on a chair and sees what kind of sounds it makes. A six-month-old will pick something up and explore it every way she can, including sniffing it and putting it in her mouth and looking at it. Um, a lot of the same things we see in scientists, curiosity, exploration, experimentation, we see even in very young babies. So one of the things that we often hear about children is that they live in a fantasy world and they can't tell the difference between what's real and what's imaginary. But according to your book, maybe that's not the case. That's right. We, one of the things that we know about uh, babies and young children, especially young children, is that they love to pretend. They live in these wild, crazy, imaginary worlds uh, full of ninja turtles and princesses and tea parties. And for a long time, psychologists thought that was because children couldn't tell the difference between just pretending or imagining and reality. But what we've begun to realize in the last little while is that children understand that difference perfectly well. They know the difference between what's just pretend and what's actually real. Um, when they're pretending, what they're really doing is exercising their ability to imagine possibilities that are different from the way the world really is. And that capacity, that ability to imagine different things is what philosophers call counterfactual reasoning. And it's a really important part of what we do in science. So everything that we do in science is really thinking about ways the world could be that are different from the way the world actually is. So why do you think babies have developed this sense of, you know, being able to hypothesis test or counterfactual reasoning, as you call it? Well, one of the interesting puzzles that we have is why it is that we humans have such a long period of childhood. So you might ask, why do we have babies at all? After all, they're not much help around the house, and we have to actually invest a lot, put in a lot of work just to keep them alive and functioning. And one answer to that seems to be that we need to have a period, a time in our lives, when we can just explore, just learn, 
without having to worry about taking the things that we've learned and actually putting them to use. One way you could think about it is that it's like babies and young children are like the research and development division of the human species, and we grown-ups are production and marketing. So we have this time when we have all these grown-ups who are actually investing in us, taking care of us, uh, looking after our needs, and then in that time we can actually find out all the things that we need to know to implement to be effective adults. So if, these, if, if the babies are really living in this kind of um, hypothesis testing and, and sort of imaginary world, um, sometimes we can think about it as being highly creative. But some psychologists also think that creativity has another component, that it has to be somehow useful or it has to be, you know, has to have some kind of, some kind of a solution to a problem. And that, in fact, finger painting by babies is inherently not creative because it doesn't have that feature. What do you think about that kind of definition of creativity? And, and do babies, is there, is there some usefulness that we can see in the way that their imagination works? Well, of course, it's always hard to define what it is that you mean when you're talking about creativity. So what exactly counts as being creative? Um, in computer science, people talk about two different approaches you can take to trying to solve a problem. One of them is that kind of exploit approach, where you just try to find a solution that you think will work as quickly as you can. But another way that you could try to solve a problem is to just take off and explore all the different possibilities, all the different ways that problem could be solved, without worrying too much at first about whether which one of those is really the right way. And we really need to have a balance between those two ways of approaching problems, the sort of wide-ranging explore way and the let's actually find the solution exploit way to be creative and to find solutions. And one idea is that when we're young, we're more sort of in the explore mode. So when we're young, we're looking at lots and lots of different solutions and exploring even things that may not turn out to be useful to begin with. Um, it's a bit like the difference between basic science and engineering. In basic science, what we're trying to do is just figure out all the possibilities. And then when we're engineers, we have to figure out how do we actually take those possibilities and put them to work. And the science scientists and the engineers are both doing something that's creative. It's just something that's creative in different kinds of ways. So sometimes when you watch a child trying to solve a problem, you can see them almost going through this process of trial and error, right? They might try something and that doesn't work, so they'll try something else. And I've often wondered, how do you tell the difference between that kind of trial and error-based behavior and, say, just the simple reflexes of an animal that we don't think of as particularly intelligent right. um, that also might come across a solution and then realize that that solution solves a problem? Well, what we've been doing over the last 30 years is we've actually been doing experiments where we can give children patterns of data, the kinds of data that a scientist would use, particularly even complicated statistical patterns. Um, and then we can see what kinds of conclusions children draw from those patterns of data. So, for instance, we have a little machine that we call the Blicka detector. It's a little box that lights up and puts music when you put some things on it and not other things on it. And what we can do is give children a bunch of blocks that do different things when you put them on the detector. And that way we can tell, are they really figuring out an intelligent solution to this problem? Um, or are they just, just sort of, as we'd say in England, just mucking about? Are they, can they take the data that we give them and figure out the right hypothesis or the right theory the way that a scientist would? And what we've discovered is 
Interestingly, even sometimes without trying it themselves, if they just look at the right pattern of data, they can figure out the right pattern of conclusions. They can figure out what hypotheses fit with that kind of data. And so if you, put, if you gave an animal that same kind of task, how do you think they would behave differently that would give you an indication that there's something fundamentally different about a baby brain versus, say, the brain of a chimpanzee or a pigeon? Right. Well, we've learned it's, it, the first thing we should say is we've learned that chimpanzees and pigeons are much smarter than we thought they were, too. So one of the questions, big kind of unsolved question, is how many of these things can are things that um, humans can do exclusively, and how many of them are things that we see in other animals. And as I say, we need to give other animals credit for uh, being much smarter than we would have thought. I, I think the big difference is this difference in how widely we explore, how many different possibilities we can think of. And we human beings are really the only animal that shapes our own environment, certainly the only the animal that shapes our own environment the most. So, you know, if you look around, we're in AT&T Park here. If you look around, everything in this everything in this park was something that was just crazy imagination from the perspective of a hunter-gatherer back in the Pleistocene. So we weren't really designed to be able to do things like build ballparks and play baseball and um, uh, have science festivals. But somehow we can actually create those possibilities. We can imagine those possibilities. And once we imagine those possibilities, we can actually make them real. We can make them uh, into, into, real, um, into real places and real, real ways for human beings to behave. So it seems that one of the um, things that we need to do in order to make the imagination a reality is to be able to focus our attention. And that's also something that you've talked about as being quite different between babies and adults, about how their attention works. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, one of the big questions we can ask about babies is, what's their consciousness like? What's it actually like to be a baby? Um, and one thing that we know is that babies and young children are much worse at paying attention than adults are. Um, but when you look at it more closely, it's not really so much that they're worse at paying attention. It's that they're worse at not paying attention. They're worse at just focusing on one thing and editing out everything else that's going on around you. Now, for grown-ups, when we pay really close attention to something, that's when we're really vividly conscious of that thing. And in fact, we know that as adults, we shut down a lot of the uh, information that we're getting from the world. We'll just pick out one thing to focus on and not even, literally, not even be able to see the other things that are going on around us. And babies and young children seem to be really different. So if you think about adults as having a kind of spotlight of attention, a kind of spotlight of consciousness, you could say that babies and young children have more of a lantern of consciousness. They're not very good at focusing on just one thing at a time, but they do seem to take in information from everything that's going on around them at once. Um, so they can notice things, the airplane that's up in the sky, the fact that there's a fire engine five blocks down the street, that we grown-ups don't even notice at all. Um, it, one of the things that you can do is just go for a walk sometime with a two-year-old, like with my two-year-old uh, grandson. And I can walk down a block that I've walked down a million times and suddenly see a million new things that I never would have seen before if I hadn't been walking with him. So also, in terms of the focus of attention, there seems to be a sort of an increase in the amount of attention deficit disorders that seem to be diagnosed these days. And some people blame the media. They say that, you know, young children are exposed to too many screens and too much, too much distraction. 
In fact, the American Pediatric Association has put out a recommendation not to let children under the age of two play with iPads or watch TV or, you know, use um, items that involve these screens. But there are a lot of educational programs and apps that have been developed specifically for these infants. So I wanted to get your opinion on whether these apps really are something that we should or could allow these young infants to, to work with, or whether the screen itself somehow delays development in the way that the American Pediatric Association suggests it might. Well, I'm afraid this is one of those ones where you have to give the scientific answer, which is we don't know. How could we know? We've only had things like iPhones around for a few years, and we won't know for another 20 or 30 years how having them around influences the way that uh, babies uh, develop or think. So everybody at this point is just kind of making guesses. One thing that we do know is that children um, learn a lot from interactions with the people around them, and children are very, very sensitive to those kinds of interactions. They start focusing on people from the time they're born, and they seem to be tuned in to the kinds of things that people are teaching them. Uh, so anything that keeps children or babies from interacting with the people around them uh, is probably not the best thing for their learning. Um, on the other hand, we also know that that very interactivity is an important part of how children learn. And an interesting thing about the new generation of, uh, of uh, devices, of screens, is that they're interactive in a way that they weren't before, which is part of the reason why I think they're often so attractive to babies and young children. Uh, babies and young children don't learn very much from, say, just staring at a television screen. But they may learn more from actually having something that they interact with. And the other thing to say is that for as long as human beings have been around, uh, babies and young children, and especially older children, have learned how to use the tools that are relevant to that particular culture. So if you're in a hunter, hunter's culture, you learn how to use bows and arrows. Um, if you're a farmer, uh, you learn how to play with, um, you, you start out playing with shovels and picks and, uh, and rakes and learning how to plow. Um, and in our culture where... Uh, screens and technology are so important, I think it makes sense to think that children will learn how to master those kinds of tools and be interested in learning how to master those kinds of tools. So I think the kind of common sense idea, which is that babies and children shouldn't be spending hours and hours um, on their iPhones, just like grown-ups shouldn't be spending hours and hours on their iPhones, but it's not going to do any great damage if um, a baby uh, goes and, like my grandson, looks at Thomas the Tank Engine on uh, Netflix on an iPhone every once in a while. So what parents should look for really are apps that are interactive, that respond to the child, and the, and the child can sort of somehow move or make something happen in the app, and then also be cognizant of the fact that it shouldn't limit the amount of time that they are spending interacting with people. Exactly. So as far as babies are concerned, the best toy ever, no matter what kind of toy you're talking about, is always going to be a person, a caregiver, someone who's taking care of them. That's the, those are the things that babies like to play with the most, and it's because those are the things that babies are learning from the most. And we should also add that many of the things that we just take for granted, the kind of classic toys like building blocks or nesting blocks or mixing bowls, um, those are things that babies have always liked to play with, and we think it's because babies are actually learning from playing with those things. Even though it's not obvious to us, uh, the way that a bunch of mixing bowls fit, fit into each other is actually kind of mysterious. Um, the way that gravity works is actually kind of mysterious. And children can learn from interacting with those classic toys um, and learn things that they might not learn from, say, interacting with uh, an electronic toy. 
Um, so I think people and the kind of classic things that babies are exploring, those are never going to go out of style. So as you mentioned, children do, they seem to be interested at different things at different times in their infancy. And in fact, there's this, this idea called the critical period where some parts of the brain develop, you know, at a particular stage in life. And if you miss that particular stage, then, for example, with vision, you can have lifelong deficits. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the critical periods and why they might have evolved that way. And you know, what that means about their intelligence. Well, I think nowadays we tend to think more in terms of sensitive periods than critical periods. So the idea is that at various stages of development, and particularly early, children may be more open to possibilities than they are later on. And part of what seems to happen is as you learn more, it gets to be harder and harder to change your mind, whether that's learning about the way the visual system works or learning about how the sounds of language work or learning about how the world works. So it's a kind of paradox where the more we know, the less open we are to learning new things. Um, and that seems to be part of what's happening in these, uh, sensitive, uh, in these sensitive periods. So people often have this feeling, oh, no, my baby is three. I haven't taught him everything that he's going to learn. It's all over. And that's really not true. We continue learning. Our brains continue changing literally until we die. So we're still learning new things rewiring our brains all the way through life. But it is true that that early period is a great opportunity um, to really set the brain off on the right foot, um, to give children the kind of capacities for uh, exploration and learning that will stand them in good stead later on. So we have a tweet from Adam S. Bristol. Is it possible that technology can make babies smarter? Well, I think the answer is that babies are already as smart as they could possibly be. They're actually smarter, interestingly, they're smarter than any machine learning system that we know of. In fact, we're doing some research kind of going the other way around. I think actually by looking at babies and children um, and seeing how they manage to learn so, as much as they do, they're the best learning machines we know of in the universe, that can actually give us some clues about how to design technology, how to design computational systems, for instance, that could actually learn as much as babies do. One of the big questions about computers has always been, well, look, you can program them to do things, but could you just program them to be plunked out into the world and learn how to do things themselves in a brand new world. That's really, those are really the skills that we need for the future. Um, and I think actually children are much, much better at doing that than any of the computers that we know of. Great. So at BH Bundy says, do babies have a more intuitive understanding to their surroundings than adults? Well, that's a good question and it depends what you mean by intuitive. So one of the questions that we've asked is, that people often ask is, basically, if babies are so smart, why are grown-ups so stupid? So why is it that we always seem to make mistakes and we get things wrong? And, um, for instance, we often don't understand basic ideas in science or even deny basic ideas in science. Um, and one idea is that a lot of what the children are doing, they're doing unconsciously. For adults to understand probabilities, for example, um, we have to sort of sit down and say, okay, uh, if there's a 40% probability of that times a 30% probability of this other thing, then what's the ultimate probability? And we know that we're really bad at doing that. When we test babies and young children, instead of asking them about probabilities, what we can do, for instance, is show them a machine and show them that uh, one block makes it light up two out of six times and another block makes it light up two out of three times. 
Now, the babies aren't sitting there consciously saying, ha, huh, two out of six is actually one-third, and two out of three is two-thirds. But then if you ask them to choose which block to use to make the machine go, they'll choose the um, two out of three block instead of the two out of six block. So unconsciously, they seem to have processed this pretty complicated idea about probability. Um, we did this experiment even with 24-month-olds. So not even two-year-olds can think of probabilities unconsciously in their head, even though they'd be hopeless, even though we're hopeless when we actually try to do that consciously and rationally. Yeah, so probabilities is one of the things that adults really are hopeless at understanding, as we've seen in a lot of um, a lot of a lot of political polling and all kinds right. of other data. Uh, and so, should should we then just revert back to sort of a more unconscious, intuitive sense of probabilities that maybe has stayed with us from childhood? Well, the problem is that the way that the children are learning is that they're learning from the things that they really see around them. So they're learning probabilities from actually seeing, say, how many times something happens or how many times something doesn't happen. The real problem that we have as adults is if we read a scientific report that says there's a 90% probability that this will happen or there's a 30% risk that that will happen, it's very hard for us to translate that into real events. Here's actually the number of times that there's been um, a tornado, or here's the number of times that there's been a hurricane this year as opposed to last year. Because we can't experience those events firsthand, we can't make the same kinds of inferences about them that we could when we were children. And that's why we need science. I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, how do you test what babies know? I mean, we've talked about the Blicket detector, where we can put that, you know, uh, this, this toy in front of them and see where they decide to to put the boxes to, in order to make the box light up. But what are some of the other ways in which you can test the intelligence of infants that can't talk yet? Yeah, part of the reason why we've discovered so much about what babies and young children can think is because we started asking them questions in their language instead of our language. So, for example, babies look much longer at something that they think is surprising then it's something that they think is obvious and something that you would expect. So we can do things like, for instance, show them something that's very, very improbable, like someone pulling out um, uh, 10 red balls in a row from a box that has mostly white balls, that has very few red balls in it. And we can show that even eight-month-olds are surprised when they see that kind of an unlikely event. So they're kind of implicitly doing the statistics that says, wait a minute, there's 100 white balls in this box. There's 10 red balls. You just picked out the 10 red balls? Something weird is going on here. That must not have been by chance. And we can do that just by watching and seeing how long they look at those unusual or improbable events. Amazing. So we have a question there from the back. Hi. Uh, my question basically revolves around, uh, could you rigorously define what you mean by smart. You use the term quite a bit, and I'm curious exactly what you mean by that. And if, well, what, what sort of measure you can then have for smart, and an adult and a child would have different uh, measures of that. That's, that's a really excellent question, and there isn't any sort of simple definition about what counts as being smart. Um, as I said, for example, there's a kind of basic tension between the kind of smart that you need to be able to solve a problem effectively and efficiently and fast, and as anyone who knows about two-year-olds, anyone who's tried to put on a two-year-old's jacket to get them out of the house knows that kids are really, really bad at that kind of smart, that kind of intelligence. But that's different from the kind of intelligence you need to be able to think of a new possibility, learn something new, imagine a new hypothesis that you've never imagined before. 
Um, and that's the domain in which children uh, in our experiments seem to be smart and in some ways smarter than adults. So for example, we can do an experiment where there's two different possible answers. One's very um, likely in advance, but isn't actually a very good answer given the data that you've got. The other one is something that's not very likely in advance, but actually fits the data much better. And children are actually better at solving getting the second kind of answer than they are at getting the first kind of answer. So it's not necessarily that children are smarter in every respect than, um, than adults are. But in the dimensions of intelligence that have to do with creativity, novelty, flexibility, those are the areas in which babies' brains really seem to be designed to excel. And that's really a fundamentally different way of looking at how we observe babies. Instead of just thinking that we are imparting all of our knowledge to them, there's something to be said for learning from them about how it is that we should be also approaching the world. Well, I think one of the really nice morals of this is that even as adults, we have to shift back and forth from this way that we are most of the time, which is, okay, we have to get something done, we're narrow, we're focused, we're getting to the next place that we need to get today, um, as opposed to sometimes, at least, when we can kind of kick back and be in that more childlike state, the way that people are in a place like this on a day like this, um, just coming out, exploring, trying out things that are new. Well, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Alison Gopnik. Thank you. So that's our interview, which was taped live at AT&T Park in San Francisco during the Bay Area Science Festival. And I just want to take a moment to give a shout out and a huge thank you to Kishore Hari, who helped us organize it and put us on the program. Um, and to Benji Hanson Bundy at Mother Jones, who was our, our go-to guy on the day of the taping and helped us pull, pull it all together. It's, it's great that we had the opportunity to do this. You guys had the opportunity. And one, one thing about this interview... Well, several things, but one stuck with me. Gopnik said, basically, she said, as you learn more, it gets harder and harder to change your mind. You become less open to new things. Now, let me just not make the obvious uh, political comment, but um, I mean, it seems to me that is there something about the way babies think that we can learn to like fix adults? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not so much learning more, but it's more about what, what we're doing as we're getting older. You know, as we get older, we tend to spend more and more time doing the same thing, whether it's our nine to five job or, you know, the routines that we get into, we tend to spend less time exploring. And, you know, we need to work hard to keep those neural connections plastic and malleable. Um, nowadays, as we get older, we need to actually pay attention versus, you know, when we're when we're infants, when we're children, we have this lantern of attention, everything is interesting. Um, so I think really that's 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 what she's getting at is that you know we we get fixed in our ways and our brains become less plastic so the um, the importance of you know keeping things interesting and and learning new skills go, you know lasts all the way through adulthood so in other words this is a recipe for curmudgeon proofing yourself <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah go out and pick up the violin if you <laughs> never played it before <laughs> rather than you know telling people to get off your lawn okay um so I do have one question, though, uh, on this idea of babies as natural born scientists. You know, I was aware going into this of other research suggesting that there are aspects of child development that actually privilege unscientific beliefs or at least make them hard to dislodge in children. And this is research from Paul Bloom at Yale. He has this, you know, much cited paper called The Childhood Origins of Adult resistance to science, talking about how uh, for kids it's more natural to believe in teleology or the idea that everything must have a purpose. 
Um, and also more natural to believe in dualism, which is that there's a difference between um, the mind and the brain, that these are qu- kind of sort of almost innate, innate things in children that predispose later anti-scientific beliefs. Yeah, you know, in fact, um, Alison Gopnik wrote a lovely review paper in the journal Science in which she talks a little bit about, you know, how children do have some kind of preconceived notions, it seems, in terms of the way they learn. Um, so, for example, they start out thinking that things like psychological causes, um, like, you know, being anxious, can't cause physical effects, like having a stomach ache. Um, and they reject evidence to the contrary. Uh, but over time, as if you actually, um, you know, give them enough evidence, they do start to put, put the two things together. So, you know, I think we probably are predisposed as kids to, you know, to look at some kind of causal relationships more than others. Um, and so in some ways, it underscores how important the way that we educate our children is uh, if we want to make them really kind of good critical thinkers later in life. Fair enough. Well, and then when they, you know, if we can just train them right, then they will eventually like our show. <laughs> so we hope. <laughs> so that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us here on Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and we are your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. The legends are true. With overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.